Arizona came early to the culture wars. For three years in a row, Republican lawmakers tried to pass legislation to bar so-called critical race theory from being taught in Arizona classrooms. Lawmakers wanted to restrict schools from teaching anything that could be perceived as judging a person based on their race or ethnicity or cause a person to feel ashamed because of their race or ethnicity. This year, the bill actually passed. But Governor Katie Hobbs promptly vetoed it, saying it would only serve to divide and antagonize. The bill wasn't the only one to get a scolding from the Democratic governor, who has served as a buffer against other legislation rooted in culture war issues. She vetoed the pronoun bill and the bathroom bill, both measures aimed at the hot topic of transgender rights in Arizona schools. She deep-sixed a bill rooted in another of-the-moment issue, drag shows, as well as a measure that would have barred state financial investments in any operation that adheres to diversity, equity, and inclusion policies. And that's just a sampling of legislation in 2023. Last year, Arizona emerged on the front lines of the culture wars when then-Governor Doug Ducey, a Republican, signed bills that banned gender-affirming care for transgender youth and required student-athletes to compete in the gender category that matches the sex they were assigned at birth. Last week, State School Superintendent Tom Horn, who is an attorney by training, went to court to defend that law. Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Each week, we explore the political issues that affect our state, our community, and you. I'm Mary Jo Pitzel. I cover state politics for the Arizona Republic. Ron Hansen is on a well-deserved vacation. Today, we're joined remotely by Steve McIntosh to talk about the sudden popularity of culture war issues, why they've emerged in a warlike context, and their effect on politics. Steve is the director and co-founder of Cultural Evolution, a nonprofit that strives to integrate contrasting points of view when examining social issues. Steve, welcome to The Gaggle. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Mary Jo. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Well, let's jump into it. Um, Arizona has seen a proliferation of these culture war bills from legislation that aims at transgender issues to things such as diversity, equity, and inclusion policies. This is also happening in many other states. What's brought on this keen attention to cultural matters across the country? Well, there's definitely development going on in the culture. Some of it is, I think we can recognize as growth, and some of it we can recognize as decay. But things are definitely changing. And uh, when we take a longer view, a sort of a macro cultural view, it allows us to see the various forces in the culture war with perhaps a little bit more sympathy than we might normally be able to apply if we're you know, suiting up for our own cultural team and seeing the others as simply evil. So if we recognize that there are different moral systems, different value frames and that those different value frames each have positives and negatives, then that is the beginning of an opportunity to grow our culture further beyond the embittered cultural battles that we see now to something more of a, at least a cultural truce like we've seen in past periods of American history. Well, what's been triggering this change? Is it coming up from the society? Is it driven more by politics? You know, what's, what's bringing this on? 
Yeah, according to our analysis, very much uh, primarily a cultural issue, right? And so we can see in American history two major cultures that have been in various forms of conflict or integration since the beginning of our history. One is what we might identify as the traditional religious worldview, right, that dominated Western civilization for thousands of years. And then during the Enlightenment, right, in the 1700s, we see the emergence of kind of a distinct worldview with a different frame of values. The best word for that is modernity, secular modernity and religious traditionalism. And even though both of those worldviews have changed and evolved over the years of American history, up until the 1960s, those two major worldviews were sort of the macro-cultural structures, which had a kind of a truce. In other words, traditionalism provided the basic moral foundation for modernity, but modernity also enforced a degree of separation of church and states so that it could keep theocracy at bay, so to speak. But then beginning in the, in the 1960s, and we could trace it all the way back for hundreds of years, but really coming to the fore in the 1960s, the cultural movement, which is characterized by a variety of combined movements, in the civil rights movement, the beginnings of the environmental movement, a new kind of moral system, what we can identify as a kind of a progressive postmodern moral system, began to emerge in America. And again, these are large-scale demographic trends of culture. And the progressive moral system sort of found its opportunity for cultural growth by embracing a new kind of morality, a morality that was concerned more than ever before about people who had been marginalized or excluded, you know, victims of oppression and victims of abuse, like whether it was the environment or racial minorities or other minorities. And of course, sexual gender minorities, right, the gay people, to use a general term, were among the folks who had been oppressed and marginalized and generally looked down upon by the larger cultural structure. And so progressivism as a large-scale worldview really saw the values of, of being able to right the wrongs of history, right, correct the negative externalities of modernity, and generally forge a new kind of morality, a more inclusive morality, a more world-centric morality, rather than an ethnocentric morality that only saw, you know, Americans as morally worthy, right? So many beautiful things about progressivism emerged And these have made positive changes in society, right? And it is giving progressivism its due, despite the inevitable pathologies that accompany every one of these large-scale cultural structures. Progressivism made progress. It was a counterculture for many years. But beginning around 2012, 2013, progressivism made some major strides culturally, even though politically it was not able to you know, gain significant power at the ballot box, it has gained significant cultural power, especially in elite institutions over the past 10 years. And this has brought positive changes, but it's also roiled the culture war because there are many progressive values that are not are just more inclusive. Many of those cultural references are about transcending, pushing off against the negatives. And so as progressivism begins to succeed, as gay marriage is legalized, as gay people become accepted, this same impulse of liberation and a kind of breaking free from old cultural norms, that momentum carries on in ways that start to affect other marginalized cultural groups. And the calculus of who the oppressor and who the oppressed are begins to change as cultural changes. So 
the sense of transcendence, you know, I don't want to call progressivism a religion because that would be too reductive, but the same sense of, of moral satisfaction and, you know, high, higher cause, the things that motivate humans, you know, throughout history, that has its own momentum. The joint commitments of progressive culture have a momentum, and that momentum, we, we can see it getting to the point where other cultures have to push back. It's no longer a cultural counterculture. In some ways, it's a new establishment, a new moral foundation. And many of those morals constitute triumphs, like the normalization of gay people who were previously marginalized. But we're now beginning to see how progressivism inevitably goes too far by victimizing others in its quest to liberate certain victim groups. Some of the key issues that have bubbled around in Arizona, especially in our legislature in recent years, you know, have addressed transgender youth, the whole idea of critical race theory in terms of instruction in the classroom. And these things come at a time when many people are talking about parental rights, yet the message from some of this legislation is the state knows better. So can you put that in the context of like this clash of progressivism and traditionalism and then where modernity comes in? Sure. It's important to just see this, that the culture war can't be understood through a simple left-right analysis. Because we have this sort of secular modernity that would ideally like everyone to get along and play fair. But then we have these two intensely motivating moral systems, one thousands of years old, the traditional, and one which is relatively uh, new on the scene of the last few decades, but coming to the fore in many of America's elite institutions, as I mentioned. These two major moral systems are, in a sense, duking it out. And, and as many conservative commentators have admitted, progressives have, in a sense, won the culture war. You know, the rainbow flags all over the mainstream are a, a victory parade, I think for good reason. But because that same, that same sense of moral, moral charge that motivated people to bring gay people into our social norms of acceptance, that same moral charge is now causing traditionalists to feel as though they're not only being culturally dethroned, but they're being oppressed by you know, the po progressive politics and progressive social norms. So they see politics as really the only avenue open to them since they've kind of lost the culture war in important respects. They feel as though the courts and legislatures need to protect them and protect them from the zeal that wants to oversolve. And it's not just a matter of promoting gay people and, and protecting people who've been previously oppressed. Many of the activists seem to be motivated, even if unconsciously, by a desire to pound a silver stake into the heart of traditionalism. Whatever it is, whatever traditional moray or social norm can be found, they want to make that seem like pure bigotry. So for example, with transgender rights, right? To a degree, we want to see transgender people be as normalized as more mainstream gay people. That's part of the ongoing positive moral progress to sort of recognize that it's a free country and people should be accepted for who they are. But at the same time, we also have a very traditional important value, which is childhood innocence. Childhood innocence isn't bigotry. Wanting to protect your kids from the social norming of many progressive activists that reach before the third grade, it seems as though if we were taking sympathy for both moral systems and recognize that they both have positives and negatives, then we might see an appropriate role for the legislature in saying, look, you know, before third grade, we're going to create this bubble of childhood innocence and we're not going to introduce sexual themes. That seems to be something that would be a, a, cultural, a specific cultural compromise, 
it's a shame that that kind of compromise has to be written into law because these social norms are better negotiated, if you will, at a level of cultural discourse rather than law. But if cultural discourse fails, then we have to have at least a degree of sympathy for traditionalists maintaining some degree of respect within the larger culture. This recently played out at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles, where the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which is a a gay liberation group, were uh, given pride of place and honored in a way. And this created all kinds of turmoil, culture war, back and forth. That's a good case study of how in the 1980s, when Reagan was president, when gay people weren't accepted, when AIDS was ravaging the gay community, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence were a sort of a comedy troupe in a way who were telling the truth in important ways, right? They were emancipatory. They were liberating in many important ways. And the larger culture accepted them for who they were. In other words, activists as entertainers. But of course, now that things have changed, now that Christians, as we see in the 303 Supreme Court creative case, Christians are asking for some degree of civil rights protection on their own. You know, I'm not ready to say that Christians are an oppressed minority, but one way of thinking about it is progressives are very different to Islamic religionists, right? Americans who are of the Muslim faith, they're very respectful. They treat them with a degree of kid gloves because they're seen as a, an oppressed class, right? Somebody for whom after 9-11 there was bigotry toward Islamic people. So they're naturally in the sympathies of progressives. But that same sense of sympathy, it's a black and white contrast to the way that Christian religionists are seen as somehow, you know, beyond the pale and bigoted. And if you can imagine the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence parodying Islam at Dodger Stadium, that you could see how progressive mores would condemn that as horrific. But somehow Christians are are a fair target. And so I think that the cultural reckoning that the 1980s, you know, the 2020s are not the same, and that it's no longer okay, according to our progressive and traditional mores, to vilify somebody's religion or to humiliate them in public. That's no longer funny. You know, so these things are changing. We can see similar things with trans rights and women's rights, right? Women throughout progressive history over the past few decades were an important group that progressives triumphed in creating equality, right? There's still more to go. But when it comes to bigotry or racism or or, homophobia or misogyny, any negatives that we can point to that progressivism has tried to overcome, while there's a degree to which we need to strongly condemn those negatives, we also need to recognize that if you want to root out every last vestige of these things that we don't like, you have to resort to tyranny, the freedom that we, we all take for granted, is in a very important element of what needs to be preserved. And and that's where this calculus of social norms overlaying the attempt to legislate those social norms, that's sort of a, a way of understanding the culture war and a way of appreciating that everybody has a piece of the truth and everybody has activists who are fundamentalists, who go too far. So we need to be protected from both traditional fundamentalists and their attempt to create a theocracy and progressive fundamentalists in their attempt to take over the culture in a way that invalidates these previous cultural structures that have a right to respect. Perhaps you've already answered my next question, but we're curious, you know, what's triggered the fascination with drag shows? That's been coming up in legislation all across the nation. And then more broadly, you know, these culture war issues don't just focus on 
LGBT youth and issues in the classroom, but go beyond that to other issues in the classroom. So I'm wondering also if there's, can you draw a line to connect issues involving trans youth and like book bans, not wanting Fahrenheit 451 to be taught in the schools? Well, regarding the fascination with drag shows, let me say first that, you know, I do, I'm not offended by drag shows. I think drag queens are sometimes funny and it doesn't bother me one bit. But if I were to take some sympathy to those who have a, a strong sense of past social mores, and regardless of any bigotry against gay people, this idea of childhood sexual innocence is a value that I can have sympathy for. And I can see how the promotion of Drag Queen Story Hour, for example, Part of the reason that it's popular is that it's a way of, like I said, pounding a silver stake into the heart of traditional values, right? In other words, flaunting those values and sort of stomping on them in a way that you would never do to Islamic people, but you you can do to Christian people. So that's one of the reasons. I mean, another reason is that there's a, a positive value in normalizing trans people. And so bringing Drag Queen Story Hour to the library, if you're a progressive, is an important way of getting media attention for this norm wherein trans people are accepted. So there's some positives on both sides and there's some negatives on both sides, as I'm saying. Now, with regard to drawing a line from that to transgender youth and book banning, here I would say that, again, the top value, this is not a static position, it sort of has to go back and forth to a degree, right? So the top value is People who are transgender, you know, by birth, they're sort of born that way. For them, uh, they need societal acceptance. We want to accept trans people, even young people, because they're vulnerable in this society for suicide and other damage to their psyche for their lack of acceptance. And so the, the general extension of gay acceptance to include trans acceptance certainly includes post-pubescent trans youth who need protection and progressivism has done well to carve out some social norms that allow us to see transgender youth as vulnerable, right? So that's that's a positive that I want to state. Beyond the percentage of people who were born with trans identity, we also see within progressive culture, there's sort of a, a fashion for transgenderism. It's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. I think that people who are not in a sense, biologically transgendered. They want to go through a phase in their teenage years of identifying as transgender. That's certainly, you know, fine with me. I mean, you know, there have been polls that show that 30% of girls in some high schools identify as transgender. And so clearly there's something going on beyond the, the biological proclivity to transgenderism or even homosexuality. That youth movement is something that, that can be, I think, accepted within our social norms but I think people who are trying to hold the line in traditional social norms, that we begin to recognize that there's something to their argument that doing irreversible surgery or taking medicines that prevent puberty, that at some point we have to say if, if a lot of that is not biological and a lot of it is being driven by sort of cultural movements, then it seems as though there's a, a role for a limitation on progressive mores, that progressive mores live in a pluralistic society, that we need to exercise a degree of cultural intelligence that doesn't just assume that everything that progressivism says is right and flawless and everything that any traditional opposition to that is just plain bigotry, being able to step back and have some appreciation for the positives of both cultures and indeed the value of pluralism where we live in a free country and we're not going to force our social norms down the throats of those who disagree, 
these are wherein the values of these three major cultures need a, a degree of negotiation. And to do that, it takes a degree of cultural intelligence, right? Which is like emotional intelligence or social intelligence. It's a practice. It's a skill. So where does the push on book banning fit into that? Is that also this desire to protect childhood innocence? And where does the parents' right and maybe the greater societal benefit of understanding diverse ideas come into play? Sure. Well, first of all, the, the label book banning, I think we have to understand that part of that comes from a Democratic Party focus groups where they found that if you, if you label something as book banning, then that riles people up, right? Nobody wants to see book banning. Nobody wants to see censorship. And that if you just send out all the pundits with the talking point of book banning, book banning, book banning, then that's going to be you know, driving people to vote Democratic, right? And so I don't see that as a completely illegitimate political tactic. But pulling back from the, the boogeyman of book banning, if we look at what I mentioned earlier about a degree of respect for the social norms that ask for childhood innocence to be protected until the third grade, and the sort of quasi-religious zeal of activists wanting to make sure that the social norms for trans acceptance go all the way down to kindergarten and introduce these books that, again, you know, some of the books, as they've been highlighted by conservative commentators, do pound a silver stake into the heart of traditional values, right? And they've been termed pornographic. So again, if we have some sympathy for traditionalism, even if we're not Christians, if we have sympathy for this moray of childhood innocence, then we can see how books, which are social norming, that are in libraries, that kids before the third grade and before are going and reading because they're cultural hot button issues. They're like, you know, of course they want to read the banned books. Then at some point you have to say, we need to respect some traditional values here. And third grade seems like a reasonable place to draw the line. I wanted to circle back a bit, uh, Steve, just to make it clear that you know there is a difference between gender identity and gender fluidity and being transgendered. Because not every drag queen's trans, not every teen that wants to express gender identity through culture is trans as well. Do you agree on that point? I mean, and how do we distinguish as we go into these culture wars? How does that distinction get respected? Well, first, again, we could start by respecting the positive nature of wanting to be accepting to all people. And recognizing that when it comes to our cultural identities, that includes a spectrum of gender identities. And that that spectrum of gender, gender identities, apart from whatever you think about biology, people who have a gender identity that's non-conforming within a social moray of acceptance and inclusion, then we definitely, we do well to create a social moray that includes people across the gender spectrum and doesn't see them as, as freaks or outcasts. So that, I would say, a positive moral development as accepting a broader spectrum of genders, it, it sort of followed naturally from accepting gay people, right? And this new social norm has, I mean, it's, it's worth pointing out that 70, according to the latest polls in 2023, 71% of the American public now accepts gay marriage and, and gay people as a normal part of our culture. And it seems as though there's more work to be done following that natural social evolution of mores to be even more accepting of a wide spectrum of, of gender identities. And so I think that's a positive development. And I also think that there are elements of traditionalism. I mean, just from a tactical political perspective, right? If progressives had the degree of deference and respect that they have, that they show for, you know, Islamic religionists, 
if they are able to show a similar amount of respect for Christian religionists, even if they don't agree, then that would help them politically, right? It would, because when you feel as though your moral system is being crushed, then it's motivating you politically. I think part of that, the rise of progressive cultural power, is one of the things that led to the election of Donald Trump, right? It's not a straight, you know, A to B, but progressive moral power has made great strides, but it's also created a lot of perhaps predictable and understandable resistance from the other side. And that is ultimately bad for everyone because it makes our democracy dysfunctional. Huh. So that's very interesting because in Arizona this year, the culture wars have ended in what seems to be a draw. I mean, nothing's really changed policy-wise, although it's certainly being talked about a lot out in the public sphere. You've talked a lot about the need to sort of understand, you know, where people are coming from, from the traditionalist worldview to the progressive worldview. So where do you find the path towards consensus when these camps currently seem dug in? Excellent question. I appreciate you asking me that. For seeing these worldviews along a timeline of their sequential emergence, right? We can see the traditionalism, you know, even though it has unique modern characteristics, you know, it ultimately goes back to scripture, which is thousands of years old. You know, modernity, we can trace to the Enlightenment and the liberal values that frame its moral system. And then progressivism, which began to be democratized in the 60s and which is now become a major segment of American culture. Again, lots of polls have tried to identify how many progressive activists there are, but these have been motivated by their own ideological agendas. And so they they constantly uh, peg the number of progressive people at like 15% or 7% or some very small number. But in reality, the larger culture of progressivism that kind of has sympathy for many of the more extreme progressive activists and that, you know, has has facilitated the winning of the culture war by progressive morality, I would say that's more like 20%. So the logic in some ways is simple, the logic of further cultural growth. It's growth that got us to this culture war, and it's further growth that can help us, you know, there'll always be conflict, but we can, I think it's not beyond reason to expect that eventually we will emerge into a more of a cultural truce, and conversations like this can help with that. So we can also see a kind of a pattern whereby as these worldviews emerge, each one is a sense breaking free of the grip of the previous worldview, right? So in the French Revolution, breaking free of the grip of the traditional religious civilization, you know, that was liberty, equality, fraternity was the rallying cry, right? Then we see progressivism in history breaking off from modernity and with the rallying cry of turn on, tune in, drop out, right? This sort of counterculture emerged by defining its values in reference to the negatives of the previous culture, right? By rejecting the previous culture. And that, again, created both positives and negatives. But we can see this pattern of pushing off against. And so to the extent that larger 20% progressive postmodern worldview, its values are defined as a kind of antithesis to the establishment. This points to the potential for a synthesis, right? An antithesis is followed by a synthesis not just in you know, Hegel's philosophy, but across evolution. We begin to understand that culture is evolving and it's following similar patterns. The opportunity for a cultural synthesis that can carry forward the best and leave behind the worst of all three of these major cultural worldviews, right? The, the distinctions will still be there in the synthesis, but it can create a bigger container, right? A, a wider moral purview that can appreciate both the conflicting values of these different worldviews the conflicts between them and the reasons why, 
but crucially, why ultimately uh, the values of each one of these major worldviews are interdependent, right? They form a kind of an ecosystem of values that every one of these values, you know, traditional values of fair play, honesty, respect for rightful authority, those are civilizing values that we need to retain even as we transcend to traditional culture, right? Modernist values of, of, of liberty and equality and, and um, you know, freedom for human rights, all of those values, very important as a cornerstone of our civilization we need to preserve. And now progressive values that involve care for the environment, social justice, inclusion of those who've been marginalized. We're not going to make a better civilization unless we have those values as part of, of our sense of moral concern. We don't need to reject the whole thing. We can move beyond and achieve a kind of a new cultural truce. What's the role of politics and policymaking then in creating this synthesis? Or does it have to happen in that larger ecosystem like the public square? trying to pin down where politics enters and ends on this discussion. Well, politics has a role to play, but ultimately the conflict is a cultural conflict. And so, uh, you know, as it's been said, culture is upstream from politics, which means that ultimately we're not going to solve the culture war just with Supreme Court decisions alone or, or by voting in, you know, the opposite party of whoever you oppose. That has a role to play, right? I mean, the Supreme Court decisions do draw lines and do show how the 303 creative case specifically does show how the Supreme Court is willing to protect traditional values, even values that we don't like, right? We don't like the fact that uh, someone's unwilling to make a website for a gay marriage, but we can see how the protection of those values is crucial for the protection of progressive values on the other side down the road. So there's a degree of, of again, uh, pluralism and uh, line drawing that the law can do. But ultimately, if we were going to transcend the culture war, it's not going to be done in the political arena. That's sort of downstream, as I said, and, and that this involves using this opportunity, using the problematic conditions and the decay of our country that's resulted from the culture war, using that as a stimulus to want something better, right? America is resilient, and we've had many periods of, of downturn and strife. And yet we found a way to go beyond or muddle through. Having a vision that can recognize that something comes after progressive postmodernism, right? It's only 60 years old. It has important work still to do, but it's not the end of history. And in the same way that it emerged as a major cultural structure, the next cultural structure to emerge in the timeline of history, if we can avoid regression, would be a kind of a worldview that can better include the best of all. Last question. Is there anything you can point to where we've seen this synthesis in a more contemporary context where this has already happened? Is there a topic or an issue or a jurisdiction where some of these issues have been resolved or have evolved? Well, we can, we can point to several examples of what we might call values integration where an issue has moved forward in spite of uh, the intense culture war because it integrated values from across the spectrum. And so the first one would be gay marriage itself, right? Unlike many other elements of the gay rights movement, the, the idea of gay marriage deeply includes traditional values. Even though traditionalists may condemn it, the right to make a family commitment and to create a, a home where people are uh, you know, committed to, me, to each other in marriage, that integrates some traditional values of the family in a way that makes it hard to object to, right? How can anyone of good sense and good faith object to someone wanting to get married and have a family, right? So that, that, that issue's moved forward, gay marriage especially. It's, it's 
um, given rise to to gay rights as a as an entire category. But marriage, especially, was able to lead the way. Right, gay activists thought marriage was off the table, and they needed to make progress in other ways. But the fact that the larger society was willing to accept gay marriage before other progressive causes points to the fact that the reason that that issue succeeded because it integrated traditional values with progressive values and and kind of was a synthesis, even though the larger gay rights movement has not achieved that level of synthesis because they're still vilifying traditionalists, right? Another issue would be the legalization of marijuana. That has, again, uh, succeeded in many states, many conservative states, because there's values across the spectrum that that issue integrates, right? Not only does it integrate, um, you know, a kind of a mainstream sensibility that this is a valuable medicine that people ought to have access to, it also integrates some traditional values of, of subsidiarity and federalism, where local populations should be able to choose about prohibition if they think that the values of, of freedom overcome the values of, of morality-based prohibition, then that can be seen as a partial synthesis that explains why that issue has made progress, whereas others have been stymied by the culture war. Uh, so really, the solution is a compromise or a consensus, ultimately. We're not trying to meet in the middle. That is, centrism is no longer really a viable political position at this time in history because of the, the intense polarization. If you've ever played with the magnet, you try to find the middle of the magnet, it throws you to one side or the other, right? So we have these strong polar forces. So we're not trying to get people to compromise and meet in the middle, although, you know, certainly bipartisan compromise is good when you can get it. You know, we'll take it. But it's not a viable political strategy because we need a larger cultural container in order to create compromise, we need a synthesis and not a regression to the previous thesis, right, to use that construct. So the idea that we're going to look at our culture in terms of its development and begin to envision a better way that can move beyond its, I mean, I guess if, if I had to, I would say it's a higher form of centrism, which has a larger cultural container, right? Instead of current centrism wants to just meet in the middle and, you know, cut off the extremes, we're saying, no, that's, that, that some of what centrists label as the extremes, these are foundational moral systems that we that people are not going to be willing to just discard or give up. So we need to create a, a cultural container that can appreciate these values and allow for uh, the integration of their best aspects. And that's the cultural solution that can then create the downward pressure to improve our politics. Wow. This has been a great talk. Very interesting framework to look at the next time a big debate arises. We're going to have fun watching that. <laughs> sure, sure. And if you're able to step outside, again, that's this practice of cultural intelligence. Step outside the culture war for a minute, even though you may have a preferred pole in the, the larger, you know, multiple polarities. If we understand that there are elements of these poles that are ultimately interdependent, finding that interdependence raises your own consciousness. Right? And it's through raising consciousness across the culture that we can evolve our culture overall. Well, Steve, thank you for your time and for sharing these ideas. If people want to follow your work, is there a way they can follow you on social media? The Institute for Cultural Evolution, the, the, the political project of the Institute, which I'm the founder and head of, is called the Developmental Politics Project. Right? And so we're on Twitter at Politics Develop. But if people really want to get into the details of, of where this perspective that I represent comes from, then I can point to my 2020 book, Developmental Politics, How America Can Grow into a Better Version of Itself. Great. 
Thank you again for your time. We really appreciate you coming on The Gaggle to talk about this. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That is it for this week, Gaggle listeners. If you like the show, please leave us a review and share it with a friend. To make sure you never miss an episode, follow The Gaggle on your favorite podcast app. And you can follow me on Twitter and threads at Mary J. Pitzel, that's P-I-T-Z-L. The editor and producer of today's episode is Amanda Luberto. You can follow her at Amanda Luberto, that's L-U-B-E-R-T-O. Next week, we're opening up the mailbag and answering your questions about Arizona politics. It's not too late to submit your thoughts and questions. So reach out to us at thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com or give us a call at 602-444-0804. And be sure to include your first name, the city you live in, and your questions. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and AZ Central. <music>